This is week two in a new series for us as a church called Seven Weeks, Seven Antiheroes, looking at a few different characters in the Bible that at first glance might be easy to look at and think, oh, these are men and women that I should really try to be like. These are, these are heroes of old. These are heroes of the Bible. But as we look with more detail, which is what we're doing over these seven weeks, we actually come to realize that these men and women in, in many ways are no different than you and I. This morning we're looking at Noah. If you're here this morning and uh, you've been a Christian for some time, you know the story of Noah. If you're not a Christian, you probably still know the story of Noah because you've probably watched Evan Almighty and a few of the other films that have uh, come out. And, and we just, we know something of the story of Noah in, in our culture. So uh, to start us off in that, uh, she's going to be reading two different sections from Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible. She's going to read some verses from Genesis chapter 6. And Genesis chapter 9, those verses will come up on the screen uh, behind me. But I'll just invite Rachel to come up and uh, to read these to us as we start off this morning. All right. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on their shoulders, and walked backward, and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you. Guys, let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can uh, gather in this place again. God, we thank you for uh, your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that... He's here with us this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we can know that we're not just uh, people in Ottawa kind of gathering together, maybe from different parts of the country, but as we do that, that God is here. And God, I pray this morning that that would mean that we have great expectations for what you want to do in this place. God, thank you that your love runs deep for those that you have created. God, thank you that you have made a way for us to be in relationship with you, not as a criminal is in relationship to a judge or to a police officer, but in the way that a loving father relates to a son or a daughter that he loves dearly. Thank you that in Christ, that is how you have made a way for us to come before you even this morning. So God, as we look at these verses from your word, God, I pray you'd help me this morning. I pray that you'd give us ears to hear, and uh, Holy Spirit, that you would help point us to Jesus Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, let's, um, 
Let's start with the question that maybe some of you are already asking, even as Rachel was reading those verses to us just a few moments ago. And that question might be this. Do we actually believe that a flood covered the whole earth and actually happened, like what we read about in Genesis? You know, we've, we've, I mentioned the, uh, the, the film Evan Almighty just a few minutes ago, and, you know, we watch it and we see the, uh, the, you know, the story playing out. But as we're watching it, there's probably a part of us that, that would maybe be quick to think, well, this is, this is a fairy tale. This is, this is a legend. This is a, this is a myth. And even for those that are in this room this morning, even among some Christians, there can kind of be this thought of, is, is when the Bible tells this story in Genesis, starting in Genesis 6, about the flood, is, is, do we need to hear this as something that actually happened? Or maybe, maybe there are just some lessons in here that we're kind of supposed to take out of it, but it isn't actually an event that, that, that took place. Well, what I would say to you is that many cultures worldwide have a story, have a narrative about a a cata, 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 cata what? About a cat. Many cultures have a story about a cat and a cataclysmic flood um, sweeping a huge, huge region, at least, if not the entire world. So uh, the Greeks, the Aztecs, the, the Mesopotamians, the early people of India, it, it's not just in, in, in the Hebrew teachings and the Hebrew scriptures that form the basis of the Old Testament of the Bible that we find this, and we find it in many other cultures as well. But even still, even if you're not convinced, I know that I'm not going to spend a long time this morning trying to convince you that the flood actually happened. If you have questions about that, if you, if you doubt whether or not it was an actual event, I, I would just respectfully ask you to take that question and that, and, and that doubt and just put it aside for the next few minutes. And here's why. It's not because I don't think it's a valid question. It's not because I'm, I'm one of those Christians that, that thinks that if you want to give your life to Jesus and have a relationship with Jesus, you should just forget about science, and science doesn't matter. I don't believe that at all. I think God is the God of science, and he shows his creativity and his authority through science as well. But even still, there's something far greater at stake. This isn't just a question about whether uh, macroevolution is, is at odds with the idea of uh, intelligent design. There's something far greater at stake for us this morning, because the story of the flood that we're going to look at this morning and looking into the life of Noah is really a story about a God who is perfect and holy and who judges wicked people. That's heavy. It's not a really happy thought on a Sunday morning, is it? But the story of the flood is also a story of the same God who chooses to show grace to wicked people, saving grace that means that they don't need to absorb the penalty for the wrong that they have done and the wrongs that are committed to them. So this isn't just a a science versus creation or anything like that. There's something far greater at stake. So even if you've got questions about that, I hope that you'll you'll join me as we go through this uh, this morning. So when we're first introduced to to Noah in Genesis chapter 6, it might be easy for us to kind of think of Noah as, as... this super perfect guy, right? Like, we, we read that the whole earth was wicked, that there was violence everywhere, that, that what was going on on earth at that time, that it was really, really bad. But within all of that, that there's Noah, there's this saint, you know, there's this one guy who's just absolutely perfect, who, who, who does no wrong. And you know what, that, that was kind of the Noah that I grew up with. I remember as a kid going to, uh, I was raised in a Christian family and, and went to a church from a very, very young age. And, and uh, it's a story for another time, but I was the master of going through the motions. And I, I knew all the stories 
I knew how to fake it among the best. Like, I, I could do all of that. But I also remember hearing about a Noah that I thought of and was essentially taught that he was one of these incredible heroes who just didn't do anything wrong, that the entire earth around him was wicked, was vile, was, was filled with violence, but then Noah was just this saint in the midst of all of it. Now, we're going to look this morning and just kind of ask a question, well, how true is that? How true is that? Is that actually what the Bible has to say about Noah? Well, in Genesis chapter 6, the Bible does indeed say that the earth was wicked, that it was filled with violence, that it was not a good scene. God's looking at it, and it says that he regretted that he had even made mankind. He, he looked at the earth, and he's like, this is not good. Now, we mustn't read that and, and, and think that God is saying, I've made a mistake, I've, I've erred, because the God of the Bible does not err. He does not make mistakes, but it would be kind of on a cosmic scale, a similar thing to something that, that I've experienced in the past couple of weeks, where I regret that my daughter takes a broomstick and whacks my one-year-old son over the head with it. I can look at that behavior and go, I regret that. Do I think I've made a mistake by having children? There might be times when I think that, but not in that moment. I just regret the activity. I just regret the action that is being taken. Imagine that times a billion on a cosmic scale, God's looking at the behavior of humanity that he created. And he's, he sees the wickedness. He sees the violence. He sees people going at each other like crazy. And he feels this sense of, oh, I, re- I, re- I regret because I see the pain that is being caused and the pain that it causes to God's heart as well. We read in Genesis 6, 5 to 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only continually evil. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Do you hear the emphasis in those verses? The wickedness of man, we can read that mankind, was great in the earth, great. Every intention of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, the writer here is just we're not, we're not to miss this. It's a bad, bad scene. And it would be easy to assume that Noah's the good guy in the midst of all of it. You know, that Noah's the only one that, that this doesn't apply to. Well, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, one of the verses that was read to us this morning, we read that Noah found favor, that Noah found favor with God. And this Hebrew word for favor is actually, the translation of it is actually a word that we use. It's actually a word that's in the name of our church. The word is grace. And it's the first time that we see the word grace written in scripture. We do our teaching in this church uh, from the ESV, the English Standard Version of the Bible, uh, for, for various reasons. It's not to say that others are bad. They're certainly not. But we've chosen to use the ESV Uh, But the King James Version of the Bible uses the word grace instead of favor. And we find that in other translations as well. It's the first time that we come across that word in Scripture. And we tend to miss the fact that Noah is included in that damning indictment of all of humanity. So when the Bible says, in what I was just mentioning a minute ago, that, that all of the thoughts of mankind were only continually evil, it is including Noah in that. And after that, flowing from that, it says that Noah found favor, Noah found grace. And then it goes on to talk about how Noah walked righteously and and was blameless in his generation. And he was righteous before God. See, this this cuts directly across how so many people in, in our culture, indeed many of us in this room, and for me for so long in my life, tend to think about how we 
can relate to God ourselves. We, we tend to think a little bit uh, like an 88-year-old woman that I read about last month on, on the CBC website. Over in Toronto, there was an 80, 88-year-old woman uh, that was going through... Um, uh, her words, not mine. She was going through her bucket list, and she decided that she wanted to go skydiving. And a few journalists found out about it. So they go out to the airfield um, that, uh, airfield, when was I born? 1930, it would seem. They go out to, they go out to where the planes take off and land. And, and uh, they go, and they're waiting there. When she's coming down, she's, she's skydiving out of this plane, and they're asking her about her life, and they're asking her about, um, I think she, she had moved to Canada when she was much younger, where she moved from, and her family, and what she did for work, and all of these, all of these things, and, and she's answering all these questions. And then the journalist, um, that <laughs> my, this makes me laugh, because my background is actually in journalism. I don't know if any of you are studying journalism at Carleton. Uh, there's a lesson in this for you. The journalist uh, writing this article asked this 88-year-old woman who had just jumped out of a plane and landed successfully, this journalist asked the question, their words, not mine, do you have any final advice for your great-grandchildren? Journalists, trainee journalists, don't ask 88-year-olds about final advice, all right? That's just, that's just a little bit insensitive, I think. But the, the, the woman said, well, here's what I would have to say. Here's what I think, and I want to read this quote to you. She said this. She said, just live your life. Be nice, and don't hurt anybody, but do what you want. And there we have it. A really good summary, I think, of how we think about it in our culture. And we extend that to God to say that if we're nice and we do good things, and we don't hurt anybody, then we can live any way that we want, but we're good people. So God will treat us good. We deserve good from God. Christians would use the word blessing. We, we deserve blessing from God because we're good, and we're nice, and, and, and we're, the, we're the good guys. But if we're not nice, if we're not good, if we're, if we're bad, if we're wicked, if we're, if we're violent, then, then God might treat us with, 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 with violence and with, with judgment and with, with wickedness because we're, we're bad, we're the baddies, we're, the, we're part of the, the, the bad team. And this is how we often think that we can kind of navigate life. The good people deserve good things, the bad people deserve punishment, and we extend that to faith. We extend that to our relationship with God, whatever that might look like, even if we're just exploring it here this morning. But there's an interesting question that needs to be asked. Who has the authority to determine what is truly good? Who has the authority to determine what is truly nice? Or on the flip side, what is truly evil? What is truly wicked? Because I suspect an 88-year-old woman in Toronto would define what is good and what is wrong or what is evil differently than a 25-year-old in Ottawa would. And I suspect that a 25-year-old in Ottawa today would define right and wrong and being nice or being evil and being wicked differently than a 25-year-old in a foreign culture like Syria or Iraq or Israel or Russia or any other country or culture that you might like to name. And then how about this for a question? What if the way that we in our culture today define what is good and right is different than our parents did when they were our age and our grandparents and, and their grandparents. What if, what if what is good, what if what is right or what is bad and, and what is evil, what if it shifts culturally? What if it shifts in terms of demographics? What if it shifts in terms of economics? Can wealthy people, do they have more of a right to determine what is good and right because they have more power than those that are on low income and may not have as much social power at their disposal? Well, of course we know the answer to that is no. 
There's something about that that we just go, well, no, that, that would just be wrong. So the question then is, who has the ultimate power? Who has the ultimate authority in this? Because we know, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that when we are trying to determine what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong, we shift, don't we? We shift on these things. And if you've ever been in love, you know you shift. And if you've ever been in hate, you know you shift. Because our emotions control us. Our emotions control our judgments. Our emotions control one situation where we think that what is being done to us is good. Oh, their intentions are good. Their intentions are good. But then many months or years later, somebody sits us down and says, you know what, what that, what your boyfriend did to you, that was wrong. That was wrong. And when our emotions are finally calmed to the place where we can see it clearly, we go, you know what, you're right. I so convinced myself that it was right at the time, but it was wrong. Friends, my point is simply this, and there are many other examples that I could make, of course. We are not perfect judges. We're just not. (laughs) Like, we're just not. We are imperfect judges. We are flawed judges. Is there a perfect judge? Is there a perfect authority? The good news is yes, there is. And we're introduced to him in Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 6, verse 11, it says this. It says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. In God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. Three words that make all the difference. In God's sight. When we judge each other, when, when, when you come into this room or you go on campus or you go into the workplace and you hear about what people have been getting up to over the weekend or different relationships or, or, or whatever might be happening around you. When, when you determine what is right, is right or wrong, our default setting is to, is to determine it against how we live our own lives, against how we think, well, if I was in this situation, that this is what I would do or that's what I would do. But as long as we're doing that, we're just doing human versus human comparisons. And by extension, we're doing flawed against flawed comparisons. And the Bible lifts our eyes to something much greater, and it says those comparisons, ultimately, they don't matter. They really don't matter. What matters is the comparison against a holy God. He is the perfect judge. He is the one who has perfect, complete authority. And that God is looking at the earth in Genesis chapter 6, and in his sight, he has concluded that the entire earth is corrupt and it is filled with violence. And God decides that he's going to act. God decides that he's going to change things because he's not going to be patient forever. So he gives these instructions to Noah to build this boat. And there's something in this for us today. God is a gracious God. God is a gracious God, but God is also a God of judgment. God is also a God who demands payment for wickedness. And you know what? Here's, here's the interesting thing. Guys, we want that. We, we want that. If we believe there's a God, we want to believe that he hates wickedness, don't we? I mean, like, seriously, the past month of news has been, it's just sucked. Like, stuff going on around the world you know, just, just two days ago, you know, the, uh, the, the, the attempted bombing, uh, I mean, well, not even attempted, uh, 29 people whose lives uh, were, were, were changed a, a lot. And it could have been much worse if it had gone off from what I've read, the way that the, the, the people behind it had intended for it to. I mean, we, we read these verses about a whole world filled with violence. And friends, I know it's a sunny Sunday morning and, and we want to come and just feel good. But like, let's be honest, is our world today really that different. There are a lot of similarities. So we want to believe that there is a God who looks on that and who goes, it's wrong, and I'm not going to be patient forever, and I will intervene. 
And in Genesis chapter 6, God decides that he's going to intervene in a massive, massive way. So there's a question in this. How can we, if our earth, if our world is in many ways very similar, how can we find salvation? How can we be saved? Well, this is where the story of Noah has so much hope for us and actually has so much good news for us. The story of Noah tells us in Genesis 6, verses 8 and 9, it says that God saw that the whole earth was wicked. Okay, I want to highlight three things here, three, three, three kind of lines. God saw that the whole earth was wicked, that every intention of the heart of mankind, all of mankind was wicked. Okay, that's one. Number two, but Noah found favor, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then number three, Noah was a righteous man. Now, if you're anything like me, when I was growing up, I shifted the order around. I spent so long in my life thinking that the order was shifted around. I thought it went like this. God saw that the whole earth was wicked. God saw that every intention in the heart of mankind was wicked and only continually evil. Noah was a righteous man, so Noah found favor. Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Do you see, do you see the difference? I'm going to press on this because the difference is key. In one, in the way that we actually read it in Scripture... The entire earth is wicked. Noah finds grace. Grace is given to Noah, and that grace transforms Noah to where he is then declared as righteous. The misreading of this, the way that I read this and understood this for so long in my life, was that the whole earth was wicked. Noah was perfect. So because Noah was perfect, God God gave him grace. In the wrong reading, in reading number two, if Noah's perfect, if he's a perfect man, then grace is only given to the perfect. Grace is only given to the good, and that is not good news because none of us have a chance. We just don't, but that's not what the Bible says. Noah is included in this damning indictment of all of humanity, but God extends his grace. He extends his favor to Noah, which is a transformative grace. It changes him, and he is then counted among the righteous. Praise God. (laughs) Praise God, and it results in Noah living a radically different lifestyle. God's grace on Noah and, 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 and Noah placing his faith in God rather than in himself and rather in the culture around him results in Noah living a, a radically countercultural lifestyle. I mean, remember, the guy's, the guy's like in the desert, right? And God says, build a boat. That's just weird to anybody. And Noah goes and he does it. You can imagine the ridicule from people around him. What, what, what even is this thing? Is that a barn? No, it, it, it started off a little bit like a barn. We get what a barn is, but now it, it's got these curtains. Like, what, Noah, what is it? Well, God spoke to me. This is what God's going to do. This is this thing that's going to... What are you talking about? This God, he's going to send rain. He's going to send this flood. What is a flood? What is a boat? What is an ark? Like, seriously, you, you're, you're crazy. And Noah's going, no, I'm going to trust God's word. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to continue on. That grace still alive and active, spurring him on pushing him towards faith, pushing him towards trusting God. In faith, Noah and his family, they enter the ark and they are saved from God's judgment of the entire earth that had become wicked. And if you know the story, you know that the boat finally comes to rest and Noah then and his family emerge from from the ark and and, and this, this incredible zoo that they've been living with for a while. They all kind of come out of the ark together. And God gives Noah this rainbow in the sky and, and is kind of like a welcome to the new world present. We've got these books for our kids, you know, that, that tell this story. And we all, we all love that scene. We all, we all love imagining that. 
And then, you know, the credits roll and it's the end of the story and everybody feels good about themselves, right? Well, no, that's not quite how it played out. The ESV study Bible, when, when Noah emerges from, from the ark, the ESV study Bible talks about the, the second part of the story and it introduces it this way. It says that there is this unexpected sequel to the flood story. That's an understatement. <laughs> There's an unexpected sequel to the flood story because this Noah... This Noah who, as I was saying, is counted among the wicked until God's grace finds him and then he is transformed. He continues to be a man dependent on grace. So Noah emerges from the ark and he goes on and he goes on living his life and setting out, yes, in many ways in in this new world or this this fresh start. But we then go on to read in Genesis chapter 9 that Noah became a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. Nothing wrong with the vineyard, nothing wrong with wine. We're a church, we meet in common, look over to your left, you can tell that as a church, we don't believe that it is automatically wrong for everybody to consume alcohol. We do believe that there's wisdom that some people shouldn't. There are times of the year for me around Christmas, I, because alcohol's free around Christmas, you get invited to socials and that sort of thing. I've not had a history with it myself, but I know it's a temptation for me, a big one. So when I'm around free alcohol, I have to be really careful I believe that this book teaches me that I'm free. I'm free to enjoy it, not to abuse it, not to get plastered off my face and do all sorts of silly things that harm me and harm other people, but I'm free to enjoy it. But I am also taught by God's word that I should exercise wisdom. And there are times that I should exercise my freedom to say, no, thank you. So when we read this and Noah planted a vineyard, we shouldn't read that and think, oh, well, you know, just by planting a vineyard and having wine, that's a, that's a really bad thing. I was told this by my youth pastor when I was a kid. I was told that alcohol in the Bible, in the early parts of the Bible, or that wine wasn't actually alcoholic. Okay. <laughs> I don't know how else you get off your face lying naked in a tent unless there is alcohol in the wine, all right? Because nobody just thinks that's just a fun weekend thing to do, all right? So... There are different theories out there about what's actually going on. Another one is this, that we shouldn't, we shouldn't go too hard on Noah because he was the first winemaker and he discovered alcohol by accident. I'm not joking. This, this, is a, this is a prevalent thing. And you know as well as I do that the friend who said to you, I am so sorry, that thing that I said to you, I was drunk. You know what? It doesn't cut it. That's, that's not an excuse. It's really not an excuse. It certainly won't stand up in any court of law. It shouldn't stand up in, in, in any conversation among friends. It shouldn't stand up if we're looking at the story of, uh, of Noah in the Bible. So Noah goes, he plants this vineyard, he has this wine, and he gets absolutely hammered, and he ends up lying in this tent naked, and his sons come in. And, and imagine the shame. What other words can we put to this? The embarrassment. It's shocking. It's scandalous. It's sinful. And this is Noah after the flood. This is the Noah that trusted God. This is the Noah that placed his faith in God. This is the Noah whose grace from, or the grace of God was extended to. We still see a Noah after the flood who is dependent with every breath on the grace of God. This Noah is no hero. This Noah is no saint. We can so easily think that, that when we give our lives to Jesus, that at that moment of, of salvation, at that moment of trusting him, at that moment of faith, that that's when the grace of God floods over us and floods into our lives and changes us totally. I want you to know that the, the giving of the grace of God is a continual thing. It's a daily thing. It's with every breath. It's with every step. It's with every movement through life. 
But we can expect that God will continue, if we place our trust in Jesus, that God will continue to show us grace upon grace upon grace. Because Noah had found favor, because Noah had found grace from God, even though he got absolutely hammered, even though he ended up lying naked in his tent, even though there was that shame and that embarrassment among his family, he was still counted as part of the family of God. He wasn't excommunicated. He wasn't given the boot. He wasn't thrown out. Guys, some of you this morning, this is so relevant for you this morning. Some of you coming to Ottawa as students, Frosh Week, I'm not that much older than you. (laughs) I've got a few years on it. I know what it's like. You need to know that the guilt, if you've come to Ottawa as a a Christian, you know, maybe this is your first kind of journey away from home but you've walked into Frosh Week, I don't know, last week or, or, or years ago, maybe you're my age and you're thinking back to it, you need to know that if you're in Christ, if you've given your life to him, there's grace for you. You don't need to hold on to guilt. You don't need to hold on to shame. Jesus took that fully for you. We mustn't use grace as an excuse. Oh, there's grace. Good thing there's forgiveness. Ha, ha, ha. No, that cheapens it. That cheapens it. But we should cling to it knowing Jesus has borne the for everything that we've done, every wrong that we've committed, every sense of shame or embarrassment we've brought on ourselves, we've brought on to others, or that others have committed to us. Jesus has taken that on himself, and he doesn't want you to live with that this morning. If that's really relevant for you this morning, when we come to the tables later on in the service where we remember Jesus is going to the cross in our place, come and, if you have a relationship with Jesus, come and do that meal with us, but stick around. We want to pray for you. We just, we just want to pray that if there's any sense of shame or guilt, that that would just be lifted off of you. Don't miss that opportunity. Some of you, this is relevant because you're thinking about your plans over the next two weeks. Friend, please exercise wisdom. Don't abuse the grace of God. Don't use it as an excuse. Let it transform you. Let it empower you to say, you know what, my identity's not in that. I don't need to do that. We see the real hero in this story only if we look uh, really closely, other than God himself. Of course, the real hero in the story of Noah is one that we might miss if we read it too quickly. In, in, in Genesis chapter 8, verses 20 and 21, we read about what Noah did, uh, what he did with the vineyard and the wine and the drunkenness and the nakedness. That came on later, but when he came out of the ark, we read about one of the very first things that he did. It says this, Genesis 8, that Noah built an altar to the Lord took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Interesting, God's still saying that after the flood. He knows the flood hasn't changed that. But he says this, Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. On leaving the ark, of leaving the place of safety that God provided in his instructions to Noah, Noah first builds an altar and makes a sacrifice to God. This was about expressing not just thanks for being saved from the effects of the flood, although of course Noah and his family would have been very thankful for that, but it was about something much greater than that. Noah knew that he was a sinful man saved by grace. He knew it. He knew he was a sinful man that had just found favor with God because God had chosen to show him favor. And he knew that God didn't just forget his sin, but rather that his sin had been placed on something else. 
Now, we live on this side of the cross. We, lived on, we live on this side of Jesus' time on earth. Christians in the room, we know that, that, that I hope we know that as we read through Scripture, we go, I see in its fullness who Jesus put my, or sorry, who God put my sin on, and it was Jesus on the cross. But Noah's on the other side of the cross, but still, still he's made some sort of connection between a sacrifice and his atonement. What I mean by that is between a sacrifice and him having the effects of his sin, or, or rather I should say the penalty of his sin, lifted off of him. He knows there's something between the shedding of blood and the forgiveness of sin. The real hero in the story of Noah is actually the sacrifice. It's actually the sacrifice because it's the sacrifice that God smells. And it's the sacrifice that causes God, Genesis chapter 8, it's the sacrifice that causes God to be pleased. It's the sacrifice that causes that. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. The sacrifice is the hero in the story of Noah. And friends, as we close, this is a pointer straight ahead to Jesus Christ. A pointer straight ahead to Jesus Christ. God tells Noah to build an ark. He tells him to take gopher wood, to take all of this wood and to build this place of salvation for those that would enter into this wooden ark, who would trust God's word and enter into the ark and be saved from God's judgment in the world. Friends, there, are, there is another time coming when God's judgment will come upon the world, where God will judge the world. And we read in the Bible that there was another time with Jesus where a wooden cross was made, where all those who enter into Christ by faith, not through works, not through trying to do all the right things, by being the right type of students, by posting the right things on Facebook, by only listening to Christian radio, only watching Christian movies, only engaging with Christian culture. That's all exterior stuff. That's all superficial stuff. God's interested in the heart. And you can't do enough to your heart to be saved. You need to enter into Christ because his record of perfection is enough and his and his alone. So the story of Noah and the flood is a pointer directly ahead to Jesus Christ. This other, this greater Noah, this true hero who would go to a wooden cross, allowing a place of salvation for all those to enter into him to be saved. There's an opportunity for you to respond to that this morning.